This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. When a guard would stop and talk to you, you used to stand back and you would yell so people could hear what you were saying to that guard as they walked by or, or within the vicinity. But he knew what a convict was going to do before they thought of it himself, themselves. He'd just been around that long and uh, he was tough. They'd find uh, Sparky in about every conceivable place you could imagine, which we would, of course, dump. They'd wait until everybody was locked up, and he would open his door and run down to cell one and get a bugler can full of Sparky and take it back to his cells. She had a kind of a hypnotic power. There were a great many wild cats around the penitentiary, and most people couldn't get near them. But she would stand in the doorway of the cell house and say, kitty, 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 and those cats would go to her. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a special episode of Stool Pigeon Saturday. We are going back to early Idaho history to a very prominent pioneer, and we have a very special guest, Mr. Tristan Hafer, on this show. Welcome, Tristan. Hey, Anthony. Uh, thanks for having me. Of course, man. Thanks for coming on. Can you? Uh, what What do you do here at the Old Pen? So I am a tour guide here at the Old Penitentiary. I've been here for about a year and four months, I think now, mm-hmm. which is doesn't seem like it's been that long, but that's what I, yeah, it's been that long. It's crazy that these last, like, what? Two, three years have gone by so fast. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Despite COVID, we've been pretty busy with, like, guided tours and everything else. And, man, you've, you've definitely been carrying this uh, <laughs> this load and sharing all these stories. So, yeah. What, what brings you back to the old pen to work here every week? Um, the history? I'm, I, don't, I like learning new things and probably teaching other people kind of the history of Idaho. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I think is pretty funny now, when I was getting my history degree uh, at the University of Idaho, people were asking me, well, what, what history do you like? What history do you specialize in? And I think now I can basically just say Idaho history. The last year of me just gaining so much Idaho history is nuts. There's a, yeah. So... I never thought I'd be really interested in Idaho history. I thought I'd be more interested in the broader American history, but mm. I think I really have narrowed down that yeah. Idaho history niche for me, at least. So that's awesome. Yeah, I I feel like the the prison, this old pen, is such a, a microcosm just to the greater story of like the development of the West mm-hmm. and you know the Wild West, as we're going to talk about today. That's the same reason I keep coming back too, like learning stories, telling stories every day. It's like if you didn't learn something or, like, gain a better understanding of something about Idaho history and, like, this prison's history every time you give a tour and someone asks a question or something, like, you're doing something wrong. Because mm-hmm. this place, it's always, it's the never-ending onion of, like, stories and, and history kind of packed in. Mm-hmm. So cool. Well, crazy because a lot of kids learn Idaho history in the fourth grade. Mm-hmm. I was pulled out during Idaho history time. They would... They misdiagnosed me or something. They thought I had a, like learning disabilities and what? stuff like that. So they pulled me out and to have me, you know, put me in these classes. So I never learned Idaho history. Oh my gosh. So my first real experience with Idaho history would be in college. Yeah. Wow. And then, oh you know, gosh. finally coming out to the pen. And that's crazy. You know, I knew Fort Boise. I knew miners came to Idaho. I knew that just the basic stuff. Mm-hmm. 
but then I started really digging into Idaho history this last two years. And I think that's cooler to me, I guess, that the passion's more there. Because yeah. I think a lot of people are, oh, yeah, I did Idaho history in the fourth grade. And then mm-hmm. they just kind of brush it off. But for me, it's like I've been studying it these yeah. last two years. So. so besides the old pen, what else are you doing right now? So... Currently, I work at Celebration Park. It's the I started that uh, midsummer. It's about three months ago now. It's the first archaeology park in uh, the state of Idaho. So they have the petroglyphs over there. They talk about the native history, and they have the historic Guffey Railroad Bridge. So when I went out there, they asked me to kind of look into it, research more, see what I could find, yeah. and that's where I found uh, Dewey. Dewey is very influential in why that bridge is there. And so here at the old pen, I thought I'd just look up some information about Dewey on Ancestry.com. And I ended up doing the old pen Ancestry rather than just regular old Ancestry. So I put his stuff in and then uh, it made file popped up. (laughs) And I was like, oh, what? And this is what leads us to me now talking about Dewey at this podcast. (laughs) So fascinating. For listeners, when we usually start our research, when someone asks about a family member, There's a little portal where you can just specifically look on Ancestry for old Idaho penitentiary prison files. And so Tristan thought he was just looking just generally for Mr. Dewey here and was accidentally in the old pen collection. And there is a prison file. And did were you aware of his time in prison? Like So we'll get into that when I talk more about Dewey, but no, because it (laughs) seems like he didn't want to talk about it. Right. And Which I, is understandable. Yeah. Wow, yeah. Um, and he didn't spend that long. Mm-hmm. You know, we spent about six months here in the territorial prison. Yeah. But it seems like he didn't, yeah, he didn't want to talk about it. So it definitely is those court cases, other people that have looked into it, mm-hmm. and newspaper articles. Yeah. If you look at Idaho history books, it, it doesn't talk about him <laughs> coming into the pen, uh, penitentiary, the territorial right. prison. But. Yeah. We'll probably get into why that might be the fact. <laughs> Let's get into it then, yeah. All right. So the inmate we'll be talking about today is inmate number 79, William H. Dewey. Dewey was a very influential historical figure in the state of Idaho. He's an early Idaho pioneer who owned a large amount of the mining claims in the Owyhee Mountains. His various investments into the mining business helped shape the Owyhee County that we know today. Before we talk about the crime that Dewey committed, I wanted to add some context to the situation. Anthony and Skye talked about the Hawaii Mines and Podcast episode uh, 63. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend you all listen to that episode as they go into great detail about the early mining history in the Hawaii County. So my sources for today are uh, the articles from the Idaho Statesman, specifically some articles written by Arthur Hart and the Idaho Statesman. He was the historical director for the, the state. Articles from the Library of Congress, Chronicling America, Ancestry.com, the Idaho State Historical Society Archives, reports done by the Inspector of Mines in Idaho from 1902 to 1914, History of Idaho, Gem of the Mounds by James Hawley, History of Idaho by Hiram Taylor French, the Hawaii Outpost, historical publication done by the Owyhee Museum, the Owyhee Museum and Archives. And I'd like to uh, just say thank you to everyone at the Owyhee Museum, the volunteers there, the director. They were so kind. They would bring out just mountains and mountains of just yeah. sources for oh me to gosh. use. And it was it was incredible what they could find. That's um, so cool. 
a book called The Union Pacific Rails Two Mines, the Boise Nampon Owahi Railroad, New York Times article on the Panic of 1873, as well as a Wikipedia article on the Panic of 1873. And then finally, a thesis done by Faith Fastaben called William Dewey's Darkest Days. Oh, wow. Great, great source list. I love it. I know. I, I thought I was like, well, this might be a little too much, but oh, well. <laughs> yeah, that's good. All right. So to recap, news of gold being found in Idaho spread across the nation in 1862. The newly discovered gold deposits resulted in around 8,000 to 10,000 people rushing to Idaho in the hope to strike wealth. Mining towns began to form across the territory. One of these towns was called Silver City. Founded in the Waihee Mountains in March 1864, it quickly became one of the most profitable mining areas in the territory of Idaho. Between the years 1865 and 1875, over 30 million in bullion, gold or silver in bulk before coinage or value by weight, was shipped from the War Eagle Mountain Mines alone. And that is in today's value. So I know you like to ask this question about inflation. So... What do you think the backwards inflation is that? A hundred thousand. Uh, it's one million. One million dollars. So just from one mine alone in 10 years. Wow. And that's, and then, yeah, so then that equals about 30 million now. Wow. Jeez. Yeah. So in 1873, we have the Panic of 1873, which resulted from markets around the world collapsing. This hurt the mining industry. In 1875, several large mining companies had to close when the price of silver dropped sharply in relation to the price of gold that same year. Also, banks located in California that financed the mines went bust due to the economic depression in the 1870s. The mining industry never fully recovered despite several uh, periods of renowned mining activity in the following years. The 1890 census shows that the county having a population of 2021, a dramatic decrease from the estimated population of 5,000 in 1866. So a little fun fact I learned about this. The crisis, this depression actually resulted in the United States dollar being pegged back to gold through the Spices Resumption Act, I believe that's how that's pronounced, after it was unpegged during the Civil War. The reason you want to unpeg your currency from any hard um, gold material like that is because you want to be able to print so much money to fund your war. And it wouldn't be until about the 20th century that you can actually go into banks and then exchange uh, dollar notes for gold. Wow. Of course, that was in, come Nixon, he took that away. So. So we have the revival, revival in Dewey. After the first mining boom, which ended with the economic disaster in 1875, only small individual miners worked small claims for about the next 15 years. The first revival took place in 1889, where an average of $1 million a year in gold and silver ore was recovered from the mines still being worked. In 1889, the Blackjack and Delamere ore bodies were discovered in the Waihee Mountains followed by the discovery of other large ore bodies. The area became a prominent silver-producing area for the whole United States. So when I went to the Waihee Museum, they had a, a graph of all the ore and gold, silver ever taken out of the Waihee mines from uh, 1863 to 1939. So in ounces, uh, about 21 million ounces of silver was taken out of the Waihee mines. Uh, in pounds, that's about 1.3 million in pounds. Wow. And in tonnage, that is 671 tons. So, and that had a value back wow. then of about $18 million. Well, so so then I go to gold. So I go gold. So in gold, they had about um, 
680,000 in ounces taken out of gold, or that's translated to about 42,000 pounds, and that equals about 21 tons. Wow. So it's only about 5% of the tonnage that was taken from the silver ore, but the gold value is about $14 million. Jeez. And it's like, so that's like so closely related with so little tonnage taken yeah, out, yeah. which is pretty quite crazy how that price is so different. Right. So with inflation, so that's about $45 million ish worth of ore taken out of the mines. Inflation today, that's about $980 million. <laughs> Almost a billion dollars wow. in inflation today. That is so taken wild. out of this, and that might—that's just a Waihi mine. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, a Waihi museum's um, a calculation of that. It could be more. It could be over a billion. Wow. Um, but Gosh. that's how much they would have sold it back then. Mm-hmm. Um, if they were to go up to the Waihi mountains now and sell all that gold and silver now, mm-hmm. they would make a profit about one point five billion. Because gold prices, That's you know, nuts. and silver prices have rise over time. Yeah. You can't just calculate in the inflation numbers. Right. So um, the person most credited with the mining revival in Silver City would have to be William H. Dewey. Now, some of Dewey's history may have made him look a little more important than he might have actually have been. So when I was researching him in old uh, Idaho history books, this is the type of language they would use in them. So, quote, Born to look the world straight in the eye, unafraid of the men or conditions, he never failed to see the opportunity for the founding of an enterprise that might mean the life for thousands of people, or to take advantage of a turn of the wheel of fortune that might mean the changing of the future of the state, unquote. And that's from the History of Idaho from Hiram Taylor French. Wow. So I like that. Arthur Hart, who um, was the director of the Historical Society and through um, 75 to 86, he would write historical articles in The Statesman, and he would write, he writes some of these articles about Dewey, and in one of the articles he writes about Dewey, he says, in quote, writers about Dewey, especially those in the subscription biographies in which the subject of the piece paid for and had final approval of what was written about him, often got carried away. So a lot of these history books and biographies, you know, Dewey kind of may have gone up to them, paid for him to be in it, and then got to approve what was written about him. I want to pay somebody to write my biography, (laughs) and it's going to be a glowing review. (laughs) It's going to be just like that. Who wouldn't be, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So now we're going to go into William Dewey. When I was researching him, his past was really hard to find from when he was born to when he got here to Silver City. Mm-hmm. So the only kind of source I was able to find was at the Hawaii Museum through the Hawaii Outpost. Some of it adds up, like uh, certain deaths when he arrives in certain places. Those all kind of line up, but I don't know if specific actions mm-hmm. or events that happened during this year actually transpired. Yeah. And I'll point those out as we go. All right. So William Dewey was born in Massachusetts on August 1st, 1823. His family moved to Buffalo, New York, where his father ended up dying in 1831 due to an election day night fight. Now, I tried my best to try to find out what this was about, like what could have happened, but it, this is only a claim that's made in the Owyhee outpost. His father did die that year, though, so we do know his 
father died when he was very young. Mm -hmm. Because of this, his widowed mother took a lot of her frustration out on Dewey by beating him until the age of 11 when he decided to run away from home. William turned out to be a natural entrepreneur working as a mule driver pulling a barge on the Erie Canal, which is just amazing when you think about the age of 11. But also you think this is, you know, the Gilded Age, so this Mm -hmm. is very much the time of child labor. So Um, within four years, he owned two barges of his own. Another business that William had was smuggling horses from Canada. He would buy horses for a dollar and resell them for $13 in America. This is very illegal, (laughs) but ended up being very profitable. Sounds lucrative. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) There's a claim that he had two wives when he lived on the East Coast, and they were both lost in childbirth, as well as two sons. However, I couldn't find any records of these marriages or kids other than what was stated in the Hawaii Post. The two marriages that I know of were both in Silver City. However, by 1852, he had enough money saved up that he decided to relocate out of New York and set off for a venture, traveling through Panama and arriving in San Francisco. So this is what I found weird. If he has two wives and they die on childbirth, like that's understandable. Mm-hmm. He'll die. He wants to leave. But apparently he has two sons. Yeah. Why is he leaving his two sons in the East Coast and while he goes off to California? And they would have been, he's about 29. Right. right. And if, let's say you know, he has his kids at 18, they have to be at least. Like they're still 10, yeah. 11 at the most. So like, <laughs> he's like. All right, kids, I <laughs> found my own way at 11. Get going. Like, so, I, I, yeah. <laughs> but I don't, I don't have any records of him actually having been wow. married or having any kids. So I, yeah. And that's only a claim made in the Hawaii Post. So any I don't know if that's true. If you know some Deweys, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> so he arrives in San Francisco. His hope was to strike wealth during the California gold rush. While forming different business connections in the area, he becomes partners with an Irishman named... Michael Jordan. It's not not that Michael Jordan. Yeah, that's my favorite. <laughs> Mr. Well, Michael Jordan. So you know what? Funny part is about this. I'm named after uh, Michael Jordan. Not this Michael Jordan. The actual basketball Michael Jordan. So my name is Tristan Jordan Hafer. So Tristan from Legend of the Falls when Brad Pitt played um, Tristan. And then what? my mom was super into basketball during the 90s. So Michael Jordan. So Tristan Jordan. Wow. Wow. And then I, I get my last name from my father, obviously. <laughs> nice. So, yeah. So Interesting. I love it. That's cool. A bit of a connection with the story. Michael kind of, Jordan. A little yeah, bit. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the thing about yeah. history. You can find yourself in all these stories. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> Both men ran a contracting business together and worked on the early version of the sewer system in San Francisco. Again, I tried to briefly look that up. That's not something I could find. Yeah. When I briefly looked it up, it sounded like they didn't have a real sewer system till the 20th century. So that's a weird fact. They could have just been building latrines for all that's I my know. Guess. Yeah. They yeah. um. <laughs> They decided to take residence in Virginia City, Nevada, for the lure of gold were strong for both men. It ended up being a great disaster for the two as they ended up losing a lot of money from bad investments. Mm. Michael Jordan and William Dewey agreed it was time to move on, but William was sick with malaria, so he gave Michael the remaining money they had left. Michael Jordan struck gold in the Hawaii mountains, igniting the Hawaii gold rush. I'm sorry. When... 
the malaria part. Like, uh-huh. take my last dollars. Like, I'm just going to... See, that's, uh, what I, that's what I mean. That's what I was picturing. Like, is him just like, he's passed out on a bed. And Michael is just like, well, he's not going to use it. So. I, well, I, I think, I think what, I, what I read it was that he he's like, go, take it. Lure us somewhere better. And then, you know... Michael Jordan goes all through Idaho and he can't find anything. And the last spot he stops at, and he finds gold. Oh and then my God. he sends a man, and Dewey comes riding it. You know, it's, yeah. like, it's kind of that stuff. You're like, all right, did you really know Michael yeah. Jordan? Or are you just trying to tie yourself to the legend? Totally, yeah. Or did, yeah, where you just passed out from malaria and Michael Jordan, like, stole rifled some through money. your <laughs> <laughs> You stole your money, and then you didn't want to look like a sucker. Yes. Oh, boy. So, William heard about the newly discovered gold and began to walk from Virginia City to the Hawaii Mountains in November 1863. This is a distance of 370 miles and would have taken him over 120 hours to walk. Probably longer because that's with the main roads now. Yeah. In November? Like, why didn't he wait until, like, June? Well, he's he's from the East Coast. So, what does he know? Well, I, I guess, guess he's from New York. So, it's, so they get snow. <laughs> yeah. But, um... I'm trying to think that's about four days it probably took him more than a week oh yeah i imagine jeez but that's again crazy. and again it says also, all the sources say he walked like all of them yeah. I, i've had four sources that he walked yeah. but again did he really <laughs> walk? he was carried <laughs> <laughs> yeah it just seems a little much to walk that much especially when you have all these people at the same time wagging over there so yeah interesting, interesting. okay once he arrived, he got right to work. He made the wagon road that led to the mining claims from Reynolds and set up a tool booth. He began to run into some real estate problems with Ruby City, the first city in the Silver City area, and decided to stake out a new town set with Amos Springer and Pete Donnelly, creating Silver City. Now this, I think, is actually true. I have mm-hmm. several sources that actually say that he was business partners with these two men, and they actually did stake out Silver City together. Because... Ruby City was being jerks <laughs> in a nicer way. They didn't want to give any of the mining claims they had to anyone else. They didn't want to lease the land to anyone else. So they really said, like, okay, we'll do it ourselves. And, yeah. like, 10 feet to the left almost, they made Silver City. He began to set mining claims and hire men to operate his mines, as he had little experience in running a mining company. Notably, he would hire W.H. Summercamp and A.G. Strucker, names that will be important later in this episode. William found love in Silver City and married Mary M. Mogul in 1866. She gave birth to their son, Eddie Dewey, on October 23, 1869. Mary passed away in 1875 from sickness, adding to the depressing shadow covering Silver City during this time. William didn't seem too overall saddened for long, though, as he remarried the same year to Belle. She gave birth to another son and daughter in the coming years. What was her name? Belle. Through his investments into the mining business, he became the driving force behind many projects that shaped the second mining boom of Silver City. In 1889, William purchased the Dollar Trade Company and owned several mines in the Florida Mountain west of Silver City. Mining activity began to increase in the Owyhee Mountains after a long period of stagnation. This resulted in several proposals for the construction of a railroad to the mines. William took advantage of this and started the Boise Nampa Railroad Company to help move supplies to Silver City in the late 1890s. The railroad was needed by the mine owners to ship out gold and silver. The railroad also helped to bring in food, supplies, a 
equipment and materials, including large quantities of timber. By the 1890s, the local mines had been stripped bare of all available wood, which had been used for fuel. You can still see the impact this had on the land from Google Maps. I went to Silver City recently. Mm-hmm. It was beautiful. I recommend everyone going up there. Be respectful, though. We had a local guide, so he's really mad about all the panic people go up there. Mm. So you have to be really respectful. It's not like something like, say, the old pen, where you can just look around, take pictures, and stuff like that. You really need to respect the land. People do live there. Mm-hmm. So if you're going up there, try to be your most best citizen. But um, it's super beautiful, and I recommend anyone going up there, you know, just seeing the old – it really does look like you're dropped in the Old West. Yeah, yeah. And then it's weird because it does kind of look like nature has kind of reclaimed it a bit. Mm-hmm. I did, like, a panoramic video of it and then of, of Silver City, and you can see all the trees and stuff. And then we went into the – hotel mm-hmm. met the guy that owns the hotel now talked to him and he had his picture of what silver city used to look like in the 1860s and i mean there's no trees anywhere wow yeah yeah nowhere and then if you go on google maps you can see i, don't, I forget what the mountain below the Owyhee mountains is but you can there wasn't any real mining down that one i think it's either second or third one down mm-hmm. and it's just covered with trees so you can use that as an example of just how stripped Wow. The mountains were from all the trees, and yeah. it's crazy. Sawmills near Flint and Dubson Creeks were depleted of local forest, and wood had to be hauled from Dry Buck in the Boise area, an expensive trip by wagon. The need for fuel was so great that old stumps were blasted out of the ground, and bark was used to fuel the boilers uh, used in the mining operations. The railroad that led up to Silver City spawned several different communities, notably the towns of Guffey and Murphy. The railroad terminus ended at Murphy. From there, stagecoaches were still needed to get up to Silver City. And I think this is like the, almost the perfect scheme for Dewey. Mm-hmm. You had to buy his train ticket, and then he had to buy his stagecoaches to get because he has a toll booth and stuff right. like that. So, perfect scheme in my opinion. Serious. This, however, lessened the cost of having supplies shipped up to Silver City. Dewey still wasn't done, as he then invested in the first dam to ever be built on the Snake River. The Swan Falls Dam, built in 1901, brought electricity to Silver City. Yeah, that's amazing. Have you ever um, been into Swan Falls Dam? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did. Um, Idle Power <gasps> took us that's in. That's so cool. I need to show, I'll have to show you some pictures oh, of it. That's but, so um, cool. You know, we saw the turbines that moved the, that powered it. Yeah. I believe his name was Ty. He's the archaeologist for Idaho Power. What? Yeah. So he gave us a tour. That's we started so at cool. the canyon, went down. They have a mini museum in there. And he took us to some behind-the-scenes stuff. Wow. He took us up to, like, the control room where all the switches and stuff are. Wow. That one That's was cool. really cool. Because that was like you're being dropped into the 20th century, like the, just the beginning. Yeah. That yeah. was really Early cool. Early mechanics. Like, uh-huh. Wow. That's crazy. Now that that was that was steampunk. <laughs> yeah, steampunk. Yeah, that's cool. I'm thinking of Wild Wild West. <laughs> that's, that's almost what I thought. <laughs> These years would be the most productive for Silver City. With the advancement in mining technology and the use of electricity, the mines quickly went bust. And by 1914, many of the mines closed. Today, only a small amount of mining is done in the Hawaii Mountains. Just, I think it's behind Florida Mountain, there's a Canadian mining company that is mining back there. They're stripping the mountain. So, 
that's Silver City. Mm-hmm. It's rise to its kind of crash, to its rise again, to finally dying out finally. So I, thought, I hope that brings context to where we're about to enter now. So we're going to now enter Dewey the Criminal. Ooh. So the date is August 1st, 1884. So just 10 years after, you know, the economic depression and things are just kind of stale. Nothing's really happening. But today is Dewey's birthday. So Was he 61? 61. He has reached the age of 61. He's living in Silver City with his son, Eddie Dewey, who is 15. I like to note that Ed Dewey would actually become mayor of Nampa in, I believe, 1906, uh, around that time. I nice. Think he becomes mayor of Nampa. That's his cool. fourth wife, Belle Dewey, who is actually 30 years younger than William himself, and she is busy tending their newest born son, William Cornelius Dewey. At 10 in the evening, a crowd had gathered at Sumner Camp Saloon. Tending the bar was Henry Sumner Camp, the owner's son, and Joe Koenig. A fight had broken out in the saloon, as was common in the western saloons during this time. William had entered and joined in the exciting and noisy dispute. I mean, it's your birthday. Why don't you want to be a little right, yeah. riled up? Oh, yeah. Especially when you're, you know, 60. Oh, I still got a little kick in me. <laughs> Kadig, fearing serious trouble, told William's group that if they wanted to fight, they had better take it outside. He had told this to the other patrons that were also causing fights within the saloon. Kadig yelled, quote, I mean this. I'll have no more fighting in here. Unquote. William responded by saying, What do you mean to do? Call me out? Unquote. The two exchanged insults and profanity until William remarked that the two should meet outside. William had been known for his temper in Silver City. Before this exchange, he had been a man half to death with his own cane just years before for mistreating a dog. So this is something that Arthur Hart pointed out in one of his articles that um, it seemed that Dewey had a knack of getting in trouble. Mm. Kinging was 20 years younger and 6 feet tall. He was egged on by his lodge brothers but refused the challenge as William Dewey was an older man and he was armed. W.H. Summercamp, the saloon owner, finally came to relieve Koenig for the night and suggested that both men better leave. They both took his advice. As others went about their night, Koenig could not get over the interactions between the two. The next morning, Koenig told Summercamp, the elder, that he would have William arrested to keep the peace. He feared that William would be after him and cause even more trouble. Summercamp told Koenig he needed to, quote, let the matter go, unquote. Koenig would go around town talking about the argument the two men had the night before. Worried people may fear him, a coward, for not fighting with William, he explained that he had to, quote, take water, be humiliated, because he was, quote, healed, armed. Koenig claimed he would not back down if William came after him as he was, quote, ready for him, unquote. Hastings, one of the witnesses for the trial, offered to sell Koenig a gun for protection, but Koenig responded by showing Hastings his new gun and saying, quote, this is my gun and Sumner Camp's money paid for it, unquote. So the gun he had was a Colt 44. It says it's brand new, so... Maybe that same year, if not year before. Mm-hmm. However, in this exchange, uh, Koenig applied that because Summer Camp pays him, that Summer Camp ended up paying for the gun. Not that Summer Camp hired Koenig to kill Dewey, but that is a rumor that did spread around Silver City Jeez. because he made that statement. Yeah. Which is 
very weird statement to make. Totally. By 10 a.m., Koenig went home where he ranted to his wife of what had happened the night before and feared that William would be after him. His wife asked if they should get the gun they kept in a trunk by the bed, but Koenig told her that he was already armed with a new gun. Koenig then made his way to the local brewery where he evidently sampled Mr. Schneider's product. Then Schneider is the brewmaster. Okay. Uh, Mrs. Koenig stated the product. <laughs> That's what I like to do. <laughs> um, Mrs. Koenig stated during the trial that Koenig came home around noon, quite drunk, and fell asleep and didn't wake up until 3 p.m. Jeez. So he sampled quite a lot, apparently. Starting it in the morning. Yeah, and, and then yeah. midday, not even yeah. past midday, almost oh. dinner time. I guess Oktoberfest is coming up, right? So, <laughs> yeah. so some listeners might know what this is about. <laughs> um, during this time, William was at home waiting for Sumner Camp to return from the mines, as his old age made it almost impossible to visit the mines. William stopped by the Hastings Saloon for lunch and drinks when Sumner Camp returned. William assisted with unloading the wagon, and Sumner Camp offered the men to rest at his saloon. William sat down and began to read the newspaper. At 4 p.m., Kenneth comes into the Sumner Camp Saloon, passes by Dewey's table, and says, quote, Come on out. I want to see you. Unquote. William followed Koenig into the alley outside the saloon. William stopped at the doorway of the saloon when the ringing of a shot was heard throughout the saloon. William flung to the left side of the door. He then leaped out and a gunfight between the two men erupted. William fired at Koenig as he moved up the hill. Koenig fires at William, hitting the ground around him. Both men were behind cover until William emerged with both hands on his gun. Andrew last saw Koenig and fired. William found cover behind a boulder, thinking Koenig is following. When Koenig didn't chase, William pocketed his gun and returned to the saloon where he drank a glass of water. William returned to the alley where the law had just arrived. Koenig was shot in the left thigh, rupturing a main artery. So, that can't be pleasant. William was arrested on the spot, saying to the officer, quote, Well, I had to shoot. You wouldn't let anyone shoot at you and not do anything about it, unquote. He was taken into custody, and Koenig was carried from the saloon to his house next door. The officers questioned Koenig on what had happened, and Koenig yells, Dewey shot me, unquote, which is, you know, a correct response to have when you were just shot, and someone asked you what, what happened. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, when asked if it was the first shot that hit him, Koenig replied, quote, Yes, he shot me in the back. He sh- shot me just as I went through the door. As I was going through to the boards, unquote. Dr. D.H. Belknap attended Koenig until he died from blood loss at 7 p.m. Wow. One of Koenig's final statements before he passed was, quote, he shot me and it was cowardly, unquote. Oh, he shot me and it was cowardly. Mm-hmm. Wow. Those are some pretty damning words about this man. Mm-hmm. And it became oh. quickly apparent that Everyone seemed to be on King Nick's side. So I have an article from the Idaho Statesman. Stagecoach driver who was there, heard the news, and then came down to the valley, comes up to the Idaho Statesman, reports what he sees. And, you know, this news piece very much viewed William Dewey as the guilty party. So it reads... S.W. Spencer, driver on the Silver City stage, informs us that a shooting scrape occurred at Silver City on Saturday between a man by the name of, and they say King in here, 
I don't know if that's how you're actually supposed to say his actual name. I've looked it up, and everyone says Koenig. Yeah. So I think it's just they just misheard him. So Koenig, who is the brewer for the summer camp, and William Dewey. They had some trouble the day before, and Dewey threatened Koenig and called them all sorts of names. But Koenig said he did not want any trouble and went away. Almost 4.30 o'clock Saturday afternoon, Dewey went into the brewery where Koenig was at work with a Sharps rifle and turned loose on Koenig. Shooting Koenig in the right side, the ball ranging down and coming out between his legs. So this is a little different from what we heard right? and what I've researched. Um, this says that Dewey came into the saloon with a rifle. He didn't have a rifle. He had um, a revolver. It's very interesting that this says that he had a rifle. Right. right? So yeah. I wonder where that telephone connected. Koenig drew his rifle and shot twice at Dewey, and Dewey fired two more sharp shots at Koenig. But neither Koenig's or Dewey's shots took effect. Dewey's first shot was a mortal one, and Koenig died about 7 o'clock, two and a half hours after the shooting. Dewey was under arrest when Spencer left Sunday morning, and the feeling of the people was intense against Dewey. The brewery is in the rear of Summer Camp Saloon, and Koenig is a married man, and his house is across the alley below the brewery, where his wife could stand and see the shooting. Koenig has a child, a little boy, who was near him in the brewery and told Dewey while he was shooting not to shoot his papa anymore. Oh, my gosh. So wow. Some very strong words against Dewey right there at the very end. A lot of emotions there, too. Yeah. Don't, don't shoot my papa. <laughs> wow. So the media had very much taken their side. Yeah. It was with Koenig. So, William was put on trial for murder of Joe Koenig. Many were convinced that William Dewey was a, quote, cold-blooded murderer, unquote, and should be punished. Almost everyone had an opinion on what happened that day. And with such a well-known figure in Idaho, it took time to find a fair jury to start the trial. By September 29, 1884, a jury had been selected and the trial began. William was represented by Richard Z. Johnson. This would be the soon-to-be um, Attorney General for the Territory of Idaho in 1885. He argued that William acted in self-defense. The court was filled with witnesses who claimed to see what happened that day, only to reveal that they had limited vision of the event or were told by others what had happened. Mrs. Koenig testified throughout the whole trial that she clearly saw what had happened. However, during her cross-examination, it was revealed she couldn't see out of her right eye. So how could you see everything if you're, you know, half blind? And then it's also stating, you know, she's in the house. Right. So now she's put some distance around her. She can't see out of her right eye. Is she really seeing everything? So there's some mm -hmm. doubt in her story. Her son, who was claimed to be next to both men during the gunfight, was in the saloon the whole time as the men were shooting each other outside in the alley. So that report of don't shoot my papa anymore that yeah. probably never happened that was very Just salacious like plea to emotion mm -hmm. for sure mm -hmm. oh my gosh people even withheld testimony because they wanted to avoid quote getting mixed up in any court business unquote so any witnesses that could have testified for dewey probably didn't even want to testify not only because the media has now turned their whole the whole gaze against him right. and their public opinions against him but they just don't want to leave Silver City and go to Boise or all that stuff. Though so they could be 
you know, maybe have some trouble with the law themselves. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, I mean, it's never fun to go to court for anything. I have. Any aspect. <laughs> like, yeah, I got uh, called for jury duty. So that, I got to deal with that this weekend. I have to call in. This weekend? Yeah, oh, yeah my this gosh. weekend. So, <laughs> good luck. We'll see how that goes. Okay. This will be my third time. I have not been a juror. Yeah. But I have been called for jury duty three times. Oh, my So we'll gosh. see if yeah. my luck finally runs out. Third I, time's the charm. Man. <laughs> When Dewey took the stand to defend himself, he claimed he aimed for Koenig's hand, hoping to disarm the man rather than kill. Mm. So he claimed self-defense the whole time. As the defense rested their case, both William and his lawyer, Richard Johnson, were convinced of an acquittal. However, when Judge Broderick read his instructions to the jury, Johnson was stunned. The judge had placed blame on William Dewey for his actions. His instructions read to the jury, uh, they read as if William had already been found guilty. I guess the judge wrote a big, you know, list of what they should do, Mm -hmm. their instructions. And Johnson went down them by section by section, like, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is really wrong. So he does. Section six, quote, the defendant in this case admits the shooting at the deceased with intent to kill, but claims justification, therefore, unquote. So the judge had said that Dewey, during his either defense or somewhere during the trial, Mm -hmm. that he either misspoke or the judge read him wrong that Dewey did have intent to kill. Yeah. So he's telling the jury this as an instruction to look over the case. When that's not the case, when Johnson is arguing for self-defense, he never had intent to kill. Mm-hmm. I'm showing that he tried to disarm him, not kill him. Right. But the damage, you know, is already done. The jury goes into um, deliberation. It takes them two days wow. to decide the verdict. In October 2nd, 1884, they find William H. Dewey guilty of manslaughter. Wow. So he yeah. stood trial for murder and got manslaughter. So he's guilty of manslaughter. A stunned Dewey looked onto the judge as the judge gave him a maximum sentence of eight years of hard labor in the territorial prison. Wow. So not only did the judge instruct the jury Dewey did have intent to kill, but then he gave him the maximum sentence possible. Wow. So these judges in the West were ruthless they yeah. were just yeah you're I trying almost, to keep law and order in a place that well I, have a, it's hanging by a thread sometimes yeah so. i kind of compare them to like um judge dread so you know judge jury executioner like yeah it's crazy eight years eight you're 61 years, years old you're 61 you celebrating your birthday get into an argument with this guy who's 20 years younger than you and next thing you know you're in a shootout in an alleyway and you're serving Eight years hard labor. Mm-hmm. And this is wow. 1884. We just have the territorial prison. Wooden fence there now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we have the wooden the fence, fence there now. Around, yeah. Five years before, two how well, 1890 sell house. 1890s, yeah. I mean, it's Ten not years, pleasant. When, yeah. when we tell the story, it's not pleasant. You got a hunting bucket on your ball and chain, black and white stripes. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you have some time out in the, you know, wood fence yard. Yeah. But it's still... Like, it's there's rough. a lot of cell time in that cramped little tiny cell house. Yeah, oof. And before he's transported to the Territorial Prison, he's kept in the jail in Silver City. And it's reported that he had low spirits. So this is where the story got heavy for me. Mm-hmm. It's reported that he tried to kill himself with basically rat poison. Oh. The doctor that ended up saving Koenig, uh, Dr. Belknap, was able to save Dewey's life, and he was transported to the territorial prison on October 13th, 1884. 
William was reported to be the ideal prisoner and a perfect gentleman. So at least he was good in prison, I can't. Not, yeah. Didn't yeah. start any fights. Not I mean, combative. Yeah. Belle Dewey and his son Ed would visit him periodically mm-hmm. during his time in prison. So his attorney, Richard Johnson, immediately filed for appeal. His claim was that one, errors were made by the court in the omission of evidence. Two, misdirection of the jury by the court in matters of law. Mm. Three, the verdict was contrary to the law. And four, the verdict was contrary to the evidence. So in November, he presents his appeal and it's brought up to none other than Judge Broderick. So Broderick immediately, you know, denies the appeal upholding his prior decision. Richard was not one to give up so quickly. And in my book, probably one of the best lawyers you could possibly get. In January of 85, he waited at the steps of the Supreme Court with documents supporting his claims for a retrial. He was able to get the judge's orders reversed and a new trial was ordered. Ed Dewey, being the loyal son to his father, was able to convince friends to post a 12,000 property bond for his father. William was released from the territorial prison on March 7th to await his new trial. William's new trial began on May 23rd. Judge Broderick again proceeded over the trial. The trial played very much the same as the other. However, I left out some key information. After the two men interacted with each other on August 1st, Koenig went around town ranting to people that the reason he didn't want to fight William was because he knew that William was armed, not because he was cowardly. Koenig repeated this line that he wasn't a cowardly person and if William wanted a fight, he would be ready for him. He went to his wife and stated that he wouldn't be disrespected by William and informed her of his new gun. On his way to the brewery, he met with Mr. Schneider inside. Koenig asked Schneider, quote, maybe you think this gun ain't loaded, unquote. He then fired into a wood pile in the opposite corner of the room. Well, good yeah. morning. Yeah. yeah, good morning, Mr. Ooh, Schneider. Jeez, I'm awake Let me now, sample too. all your beer and then shoot your wood pile for you. <laughs> so I think we understand why uh, Mr. Schneider was okay with him getting so <laughs> drunk at the brewery. Yeah, serious. And I mean, you have to be pretty upset to fire indoors. In a like, building in with a building. someone that's not related to oh, the issue. My ears are ringing just, just like, thinking about, about it. it. God, yeah. Um, yeah, well, Schneider would state that he saw Koenig firing the gun even earlier than, than that that morning. Whoa, yeah, so... So he, he woke was, up, his yes. blood is boiling, and he's like, all right, I'm going to take care of some uh-huh. business today. I'm going to teach this old man a lesson. He can't be a little me. No disrespecting me. Mm-hmm. Jeez. Wow. So, yeah, Koenig gets so drunk that once he returned home at noon, mm-hmm. he immediately passed out and didn't wake up until 3 p.m. When Koenig got to the saloon at 4 p.m., it is noted by witnesses that Koenig looked unnatural, mm. uh, either by the drink or by having just woken up. Finally, we come to what I call the smoking gun. When William had gone up to meet Koenig, it was reported that he had to put both his hands on the door frame to balance himself to step down into the alleyway, meaning William was not able to shoot Koenig in the back as both his hands would have been on the door frame. To add to William's innocence, people in the saloon claimed the shot that was fired rang loudly into the saloon. If William was shooting at Koenig, the shot should have been muffled. However, if Koenig is shooting at William as he is exiting the saloon, 
that shot into the saloon would ring just as loud as the patrons reported. With the evidence once again presented to the jury, William was found not guilty and was released a free man. He only spent a total of six months in the territorial prison. What could William have said to him? Or how did he Just profanity. So I did read a source that he said some... um, So Kegnig is German. Obviously, that's a German name. Apparently, he said some German... um, Insult. Like slurs. Slurs, yeah. Whoa, yeah. okay. So, so it's, it's going to, like, the root of this guy who probably gets picked on for being a German immigrant, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. And, like, and he's a young guy in a saloon in yeah. the West. And, and he's, he has, like, this big guy, and he's just, like, this rich old man can just say anything to anybody? Mm-hmm. No, I'm going to teach him a lesson. Mm-hmm. Like, whoa, man, what a Wild West story. Yeah. Oof. So the alley where Koenig died. Yeah. In Silver City, it's called Dead Man's Alley. What? Yeah. For this reason? For this reason. So wow. Dead Man's Alley is called, in Silver City, is because of Dewey killed Koenig. Wow. Is it still there? Yeah. We yeah we went there. So it, yeah, uh, it, you can see when when I was talking about how he's running up that hill. Yeah, it's yeah. on a hill. Yeah. Wow. You don't happen to have photos of that. I think I do. Oh. I can show you them. Yeah. All right. If Tristan's got photos, we are posting this in our Facebook group. So, <laughs> yeah. Check out Facebook Behind Gray Walls. William didn't take this second chance lightly. He had debts to pay for those that had helped him, and a flame inside him was reignited. He expanded his mining operations in the Hawaiian Mountains, and by 1889, the second mining boom had officially started. Dewey would form the Boise Nampa and Owyhee Railroad Company, build the Guffey Railroad Bridge over the Snake River, build the Swan Falls Dam, and finally construct the Dewey Palace in Nampa, a luxurious hotel that would rival the Idenhaw. William passed away naturally in his palace on May 8, 1903, at the age of 79, leaving behind one of the biggest mining legacies in the state's history. Wow, that's Dewey. Dewey, number 79. What a story, Tristan. That is wild. And no wonder, I mean, for all the successes in his life, this is literally like August 1884 to what? Like June of 1885? It's about a year. About a year of his life. A tiny blip in a span of such a creative, constructive life. Yeah, one year in about 40 years. Wow. If you do it like when he Jeez. got from when he arrived at Silver City, basically, yeah. Yeah. And the fact that he got his trial so quickly for, you know, retrial, acquittal, he's just such a well connected person mm-hmm. that it makes me. Oh, well, so Arthur, he made an article about it and he says that, yeah, Johnson saved his life. Yeah. Johnson went the extra mile, which I wonder, I kind of was thinking about this today. I was like, I wonder if this case made him run for attorney general um, because of what he saw what this judge did or if he was running already and he couldn't afford to lose such a high profile case man i bet you have a little bit of both of those yeah. and now you have a benefactor you have somebody who's probably gonna help pay for mm-hmm. your campaign and i've heard and... i've heard reports i can't i haven't dug into that yet but i've heard reports that after he was released from the penitentiary, that he actually became friends with the warden, and they both became business partners in mining. So. <laughs> That's so cool. Oh, my gosh. Great work, Tristan. Thank wow. you. Anything else you want to um, add? There's just there's just one article. I wish I had it on me. But when Dewey got out of the penitentiary, he hated every big wig in Boise. One of the reasons I think when I say he has this new fire 
is that he wants to make Nampa the town. Yeah. So then he builds the Dewey Palace, extends the railroads, which is ironic because today, so they got rid of all the railroads through the 20th centuries. In the 40s, they start taking the railroads out. Mm-hmm. And then 2013, they finally took the last of the railroads out. Yeah. There was like articles in the Statesman's like, why Nampa will never be as good as Boise, 10 reasons. And it was oh like, it was like, Boise is the hub of all that is intellectual. Um, and Nampa is where all the working class, dirty peasant people were. Oh and it's like, this is not giving off the message you think it's right. giving off. Yeah. What do they say? The great state of Ada. That, you know, we, <laughs> unfortunately, we try to avoid that. Napa is actually a pretty happening place right now. Mm-hmm. Like, my gosh, just when, Idaho so, in general. But, man. Lister's probably asking about this. Oh, where's the Dewey Palace now? Mm-hmm. So Arthur was a big proponent for historical preservation. He saved the historic Guffey Bridge in the 70s, uh, saved it from being demolished. And he tried to save the Dewey Palace, but he couldn't get enough money. So he couldn't save it. So they tore it down, and now there's a bank there and a tire shop. Wow. And this is why everyone should become a member of the Historical Society today. That is the commercial. (laughs) There we are. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. If you want to support this podcast, you can do that by becoming a member of the Idaho State Historical Society. You get unlimited free access to our state museum, to the old pen. You get like regular uh, updates on all the events. You get early access tickets to all of our events, the ones that sell out, like paranormal investigations and things like that. Definitely. Thank you, Tristan, for bringing that up. That's <laughs> no very <problem>. important. <laughs> I'll say, if we get any memberships, we're putting it on your uh, sweet. <laughs> In my, my end of the year evaluation. Your evaluation. <laughs> yeah, we'll add it. Yes. Please, if you become a member, right? Because Tristan and Behind Gray Walls sent you here. <laughs> All right. Well, great work. I love this story. Like, I I had no idea. When you were telling me about this, I was like, wait, the Guffey Bridge? Like, Dewey Palace? That guy? He was in prison? What? Mm-hmm. And, like, just how this all unfolded is just, just amazing. That's, you know, why, why we're here every day. So mm-hmm. I love it. Well, Tristan... If I were to say, do your own time, how would you win? I would say, from the famous words of Dewey, what are you going to do? Come on at me? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. All right. Great work, Tristan. All right, everybody. Do your own time. Do your own number. We will talk to you next week. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.